0: up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com the global climate summit held in glasgow recently is known as cop 26 cop stands for conference of the Parties, cop which refers to the 197 nations that agreed to a new environmental pact called the united nations framework convention on climate change at a meeting in 1992 this year, the conference aimed to secure global net zero by mid-century and keep 1.5 degrees within reach. adapt to protect communities and natural habitats, mobilize finance, finalize the Paris rule book, that's the detailed rules that make the Paris Agreement operational, and work together to accelerate action to tackle the climate crisis. Though Africa contributes the least in this climate crisis, the consequences of climate change are fast becoming more severe across Africa. Higher temperatures, rising sea levels, changing rainfall patterns, and increased climate variability are just a few. In Africa's largest country, Nigeria, for example, high temperatures in the north and less rainfall have caused reduced crop production. Mass displacement of people and a rising insurgency, especially the now popular herder farmer clashes. Have you noticed that the heat has been a lot more unbearable and when it rains, it pours? Well, welcome to Climate Change 101, and we hear that it won't get any better if we do not do anything immediately. While the Glasgow Climate Pact is the first ever climate due to explicitly plan to reduce coal, the worst fossil for greenhouse gases, current pledges are not likely to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius to avert disastrous weather events. What were the commitments made at COP26? What are their implications for Africa and how will these commitments benefit Africa? We're joined by climate activist and a COP26 delegate, Chagozie Ude, to discuss these issues. Welcome, Chagozie. How are you doing today?
1: Very well Anthony and uh, good morning and thanks for for having
0: me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Mm. Now, uh the Glasgow Climate Pact agreed to the first climate package to include direct references on coal and fossil fuels. However, many countries, you know, were not really happy with the last minute change to the text of the final agreements, you know, that called phase down the use of coal instead of phasing out the use of coal. What were the major commitments and agreements at COP26? I think that's a good way to start.
1: Yes, uh, thank you, Anthony, again for, for having me here. I think um, yeah, you quite give a good summary and introduction of what has happened at COP26. I think uh, a way to put it is it's one that ends with mixed feelings for Developed countries, they will go home smiling a lot more than than developing countries, who would feel undone uh, by the outcomes of, of COP26, which they probably would feel, you know, um, did not serve the best of their of their interest. Um, I think just to highlight the areas where we had uh, some really important progress would be to say that we we finally agreed the Paris Agreement rulebook. So you know, um, if you recall, the Paris Agreement was agreed in in uh, in um, uh, in Paris six years ago, in 2015, and during the COP21. And since then, we have not agreed a rule book that will enhance, that will see to the implementation of Paris Agreement. And there were key components to this. Um, there are some articles of the Paris Agreement that were still being finalized in terms of operationalization. And this means that Paris Agreement could not be operational without the rule book. So for the subsequent COPs that has happened since COP21, this being the 26th COP, we finally managed to agree rule book at COP26, and this is a very important, a positive step. It's also the Article 6, which has been the major stumbling block uh, to operationalizing the Paris Agreement. Uh, it talks about the carbon market, how people uh, trade in the, in the carbon market, what kind of projects would qualify, how can countries discount emissions by supporting projects in other countries. Uh, so the the, the 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 process, the rules of, of the carbon market in this Article 6, we have properly examined and uh, agreed upon, which was, you know, so it came a bit of a surprise because some were expecting that this would fail as well. From the last time we had the COP, we left the Article 6 at 266 uh, brackets. The brackets means areas of contention or areas that are yet to be agreed. And into, uh, after one week into this COP, or well, well, one week and a few days into the COP26, we had these 260-something brackets reduced to 67. And just a day before the ending of the COP, we had this brackets reduced to four. And at the last minute, we have some agreement on Article 6, which, of course, there are still some loopholes on voluntary markets that probably gives corporations some areas to explore to continue a meeting. But on the whole, there's quite something to work with. Uh, and then as we work also to tighten the holes on some of the identified loopholes. Another thing that was agreed upon was the common timeframes. The common timeframe speaks to the submission of the national listening contributions, the NDCs. So the NDCs are the operation of the documents of the Paris Agreement at the national level. They're the documents that are used to to, to show the voluntary commitment of countries to achieving Paris Agreement. It is submitted by countries currently every five years. So we needed to agree on a common timeframe for this submission. Some countries were pushing for 10 years gap, a 10 years submission plan. Some were pushing for 5 years submission plan. But finally, we have a common time frame of 5 years of submission. Of course, it's uh, for countries to prepare an updated national damage contributions and communicate it every 5 years to show also their means of implementation. So of course, some countries will not submit. Some will want to do a 10 year plan like India. But for majority of the countries, they will keep submitting a 5 year plan. Again, another thing that the COP achieved there was increase in adaptation financing. Climate adaptation has always had the meager finance share of climate finance compared to climate mitigation. So now climate adaptation finance was doubled at COP26, even though it's still not sufficient to measure up with climate adaptation at a 50-50 basis, but it was a progress. There's also progress on operationalization of Santiago Network on loss and damage. So loss and damage speaks to the economic and non-economic losses arising from the the impacts of climate change. And this Santiago Network provides technical support and assistance to countries who are facing loss and damage from climate impact. DESIRE is also, of course, achieving the phasing out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. It was part of the statement for the COP for the first time, as you referenced earlier. And places where the COP failed was areas of phasing out code, which was watered down to, you know, phasing down. As you mentioned, this arose in the last minute. This text was already a draft decision waiting to be approved. And uh, some countries slept and woke up and said, no, uh, we have to go with a phasing down because it probably impacts on the economy. Um, yeah, there are some countries that are quickly pointed out by the media, but also there are some internal uh, dynamics that made those countries to to put this position that probably if it went the other way, they could have also you know negotiations are really complicated, so sometimes there is no one side to the story. But phasing down is is, is absolutely uh, not what we wanted from this uh, from this side of the, of the of the of the summit or from the side of the negotiation. But some, for some countries to accept this text, uh, they had to put this this word. because you know it's a consensus based process. So if one country disagrees, the agreement is in danger. The Glasgow Facility for Loss and Damage, which we are not agreed upon, this was supposed to provide financing for loss and damage, but developed countries rejected this. They did not agree on this. Rather, they set up a dialogue to explore how to finance loss and damage, which is absolutely ridiculous because people are already suffering. Impact of climate change. There's a lot of loss and damage around the world. An example was in Germany that had flooding this year. They paid their citizens loss and damage money to set up their communities again to you know set up their infrastructure. So this is loss and damage we're talking about. It's happening in the global south every day, uh, and we are not you know paying money for this you know to rebuild the communities yeah. and and all of this. Probably I can talk about this in more detail to you know for, for for understand. And then lastly, not lastly, but you know in, in terms of the major things is that the, um, the annual 100 billion U.S. dollars climate financing was not met yet. And this was noted in the final text of the decision. that we note with deep regret that we are not able to, to meet this financing package for the Green Climate Fund.
0: I'm glad you left that one for the last because a lot of African leaders and people were calling for mainly the developed countries uh, to, let me say, maybe make, make reparation um, for the climate crisis that, you know, Africa is severely facing right now. Uh, but these commitments and these pledges made, what are the implications? Which one affects or speaks to Africans' case much more directly? The ones that we agreed upon and the ones that, you know, we couldn't get a consensus on?
1: Well, I think uh, for African countries and most countries in the global south, their major interest was um, on adaptation financing, on um, general climate finance, on loss and damage as well. Um there there's a lot a lot of their focus was on, on loss and damage, on, on adaptation financing, general climate financing, and also to a, a very significant extent also on Article six on carbon markets. Because this would also it's it's a major source of financing for countries in the global South, a major source of projects, a major source of financing, a major source of change for, for most countries. And you see, you know, in real terms, when you see the consequences of climate change and the impacts of climate change in, in places in Africa, it's huge. It's a daily reality. You know, it's not like they are waiting to for the impacts to start happening. It's happening very present in their lives. Some of them don't even recognize that these impacts are due to climate change. For example, where you are now, I, I believe you're in Lagos, Um, Lagos has flooded every year in very, very dramatic ways. Lake is flooded, you know, KJ everywhere in the city is flooded. You see cars moving on the roads, reaching, you know, levels of, of the car roofs. And it's quite terrifying, but when you hear conversations and, and uh, when you hear the narratives on the media, nobody thinks, like, it's not connected to climate change. They just think, you know, that's flooding. and Lagos is a poorly designed city and all of this. Yes, it's the, 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 this city's design is, is faulty. There's a, a bunch of things that could happen there. But Lagos is a clear example of an adaptation disaster waiting to happen because the city it's not adapting to the impacts of climate change. It's it's not re- fully realized that these are the impacts of climate change happening in the city. People feel like it's a normal life. When this happens elsewhere, for example, in Europe, just the flooding that happened recently, everybody knew it was connected to, to impact climate change. And they are tackling it as such.
0: Just to cut you short, climate adaptation, what is it all about? And uh, why is it important so that whoever is listening um, doesn't just hear climate adaptation, but knows what it actually means?
1: Yes. Yeah. Just to probably put it in, in, in as simple term as possible is climate adaptation, as the word goes, is purely, you know, measures that are taking to adapt to the impact of climate change. So it's it's not seeking to stop the, the source of emission directly. That is a mitigation measure. But it's trying to help communities, help the people, help, you know, uh, the areas affected to adapt help the sectors are affected to adapt to the impact of climate change. For example, in a place where you're having flood, for example, Lagos is a coastal city, how do you adapt to the impact of climate change? You need to put coastal breaks that you, you need you need to put embankments that stop the a rise in the in the in the sea level from encroaching into the city. You need to put this embankment, you need to put water breaks in between the lagoons or in between the ocean or the sea to make sure that that the, that they're able to break the the pressure or the strength, um, intensity of the of the water flowing closer to to residential areas. You know these are adaptation measures that you put in the agricultural sector. You have adaptation measures that help farmers to have more yield in their crop despite drought, despite um, uh, increase in in sun intensity. You could you could get them. You know. Uh, some some weather-resistant crops, you could improve the seedlings, you could get irrigation measures. These are adaptation measures to deal with the impacts of climate change that has affected this sector. So measures that help communities, help sectors, help people, help places to adapt to the impacts of climate change, these are uh, what we refer to as ad- adaptation measures in this sense. So cities like lagos need urgent and extremely profound adaptation measures to really you know increase their resilience to the climate crisis and also to support the communities. because i not i know a lot of people who've lost their livelihood by flooding patients into their houses so some some so some a colleague had traveled the other time to come for a meeting somewhere and then uh, left his his room in lagos and when he came back, it was flooded he lost a lot of his passports and everything you know there's a lot of these stories around but people just feel like normal you know nigeria it seems like a daily reality that uh, things have to be difficult. you know, and It's not really connected. It doesn't raise a lamb. And I think this is something that's... So this is, this is just to give an example why adaptation was important for communities in Africa. And not just Lagos, there's a lot of places, you know, Madagascar is suffering one of its worst droughts ever in history. I think it's up to three years now. Kenya is having the same. There's a lot of... Uh, the drought is immense, even to the extent that they're supporting animals like the cattle. They're using some wooden structure to support the cattle to be able to stand up and drink water or eat food from the farm because they cannot stand on their own because there's nothing, you know, barely nothing to eat or or drink. There's immense drought in these areas and you need to have measures to help them adapt. There are women in this area that are more affected because they have the children with them. You know, they cannot escape as easily as the men, you know, and and how do you help them to, to adapt? How do you help them to survive? How can you change their means of livelihood so they can make some money? Because most of them are farmers who are reliant on their farming, on their crops and all of this. In many places they are an Their coping mechanism is to give off their daughters uh, to, to marriage and this results to increasing in rise and um, increase in, in the rate of child marriage in these places, so they have to, you know, they, because they are looking to get dowry from, ex, from from this marriage and they can use the dowry to support their family going forward. So there's a lot of consequences. It is a lot of ripple effects that this is bringing on, on, the, on the communities that are really on the front line of, of climate impacts. And that's why adaptation is, is a major priority for, for Africa. Again, why is it so? Because also... Africa as a whole of the continent does not contribute more than, it contributes less than 4% of global emissions. So saying that we don't have necessarily an emissions problem in Africa, one of our most important areas to focus on is on adaptation. The people that need to really focus on the emissions part at this moment are the big polluters, the developed countries. You know, the Chinas, the US, the UKs of this world, they have an emission problem. And of course, it's it's normal that they will prioritize mitigation to reduce the emission. But in this side of the world where it's affecting people, their livelihoods, their existence, it's adaptation that is it's the priority for the continent. And the financing for this is not enough as it's available for for climate mitigation
0: measures. Now, how can we make Africa the centerpiece of this discussion when it comes to financing? And how can we get the needed finance internal uh, you know, or external? Lagos just, um, I think last week or two weeks ago, launched um, something about green bonds. How do all of these things, you know, play in the general discussion about raising the needed finance for Africa?
1: I think... Um in the real sense of it, African countries cannot really fund this on their own. They need the support from the developed countries. And this is why we have all this financing mechanism set up. We have the Adaptation Fund. We have the Green Climate Fund. We have um, the the Global Environment Facility. We also have the African Development Bank that has really beautifully come onto this conversation and also trying to help center the adaptation conversation for, for Africa. I think the conversation is growing. This COP26 was one of the most important COPs for Adaptation because it really raised the topic of climate adaptation at the highest level. There is a global momentum being built. There is a, an adaptation champion countries that have emerged from from, from from the UN General Assembly of this year, but also from the COP26. They have quite a lot of developed countries in that, in that champion countries who are hoping to commit more financing uh, for adaptation. I think the, the conversation has really grown from where it was to where it is now. That is a positive. I think in Africa, Africa Development Bank is really leading on this front, trying to mobilize financing for for climate adaptation. That is a positive step. For countries, they would for sure rely on external support um, that comes from developing countries or from Green Climate Fund. If we're able to manage $100 US million per year, that developed countries are supposed to contribute, that was supposed to be going 50-50, 50% to adaptation and 50% to mitigation. But currently it's over 70% to mitigation. So if we're able to balance the amount that goes to adaptation, you know, 50-50, we can also have some financing coming from there. Um, countries of course at the national level have to mainstream budgeting requirements for climate change into their work. I don't see a lot of countries necessarily thinking organically, you know, to include climate adaptation or climate measures in their budgets. They always rely on international development partners, which is understandable, but countries need to start thinking about this in their national budget plan because it's really important. Of course, it's quite expensive to do any of these measures. That's why external support is absolutely important. But countries should also be able to do their own because it's their people that are also also affected even though they are not the ones causing this impact of climate change it's because of the pollution from elsewhere around the world but it's still your people and you have to take care of them in that way and again in terms of this financing conversation there's also an element of capacity building that needs to be there most of our countries in the, in, in Africa or most of the ministries that are responsible for climate change need immense capacity building there's a lack of capacity to know how to apply for this financing you know which areas what is the data saying who are the most impacted where are the hot spots you know the data gathering component is not measured enough there's not enough data there's not enough you know documentation of evidences. There's, there's a lot of capacity gap that needs to be addressed for, for these countries to be able to access the finance. And of course, we are, we also have conversation with the funders to say, can you reduce this requirement? But it's important that the countries be able to articulate and present, especially in strong terms, what areas they are looking to address, what financing would they need to, address. because if you're applying for big finance, you need to be able to explain you know, what it's going to do and how you're going to account for it and what it's going to address. For example, the Adaptation Fund at the COP26 announced that they've increased the limit for their funding from 5 million US dollars per country to 10 million US dollars per country. So when you're receiving 10 million US dollars for a project in a country, you have to be able to articulate concretely in a convincing way what it's going to address, how it's going to impact the people here, what are the long-term implications and all of this. And, you know, the competence to be able to do this is lacking in many of these countries, and we need to build capacity for them to be able to understand and, and articulate how to prepare the applications. And also that people who are working in the ministries are able to know organically the impacts of their action and inaction on communities and how to properly present the this, this sufferings of their people. So there's a capacity gap, a technical support neither there, but also the need for the financing to, to grow as much as possible.
0: Okay, now let's look at the gains for Africa. Can we say, you know, there was a time you mentioned, you know, that, you know, adaptation was uh, considered at this um, particular COP more than any other COP. What should African leaders and Africans be pushing as a general theme going forward to the next COP COP?
1: Of course, there are no prizes for guessing that that's a climate adaptation for sure. It's important that adaptation remains the top priority for Africa as the communities are facing crunch, crunch impact, you know, of climate change. So it's important that adaptation and adaptation financing remains at the forefront for Africa, support for, for women, women and young people who are vulnerable to the impact. They say the impacts are really heavy on women, this disproportionate impact on women. And the data get the data gathering path should really look to have you know gender disaggregated data to know exactly who is impacted where the number of people number of women number of children number of young people you know what are the impacts maternal healthcare sexual reproductive health and rights gender gender based violence you know child marriage water availability you know there's a lot of impact so we need to focus on these areas to strengthen our adaptation and response as we are already on the front line. And unfortunately, the impacts are going to increase even more. Um, even, even with the best of measures, even if we, we are in line, for example, if all the countries commit to meeting their nationally determined contributions plans, we are not still yet going to be able to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement. So, even more work is needed to be done at this rate. We are already behind time, and um, we can only try to run as fast as possible because the impacts are going to be more. What used to be extreme weather events or rare occurrences are now becoming recurring occurrences, and um, that is really scary.
0: Hmm. Now, do you also toe the line of those demanding for reparation fees from developed countries who have actually contributed and benefited from this climate crisis to developing countries like you know most of the African countries?
1: I mean, that is the basis of climate justice, if we want to explore that. That is the basis of the conversation around climate justice, that countries who have contributed to polluting the world should take responsibility for contributing also to to solving this problem by putting their money where their mouth is bringing in climate finance. So this is uh, absolutely important. It could come in many ways. There's a lot of innovative financing to explore, but the most important thing is that countries realize, especially developed countries, realize that this is an obligation. It's not like you're you know, it's not a donation, it's not like an aid. This is an obligation from you for the for the impacts that your industries have had in the world. You've polluted your way to the top and you have to pay the consequences of this for the people who are suffering because it's a collective world. Of course, Europe is also feeling the impact of climate change. There's terrific heat waves here. You also see that flooding is not only exclusive to Global South, it's happening in Europe as well. And it caused tremendous damage, you know, many, many damages across Europe, in Germany, in Belgium, also in Switzerland here, where I am, it's cross-cutting. But developed countries should re- recognize their responsibility to bring climate finance to the table and not be reluctant, you know. So this was, it's, it's a bit funny when you look at the military budgets of some countries, and then you realize that we're struggling to get 100 billion US dollars, you know, in a year, as that should be contributed by more than 30 countries. It's, it's quite funny. But that is the reality of our climate challenges at this stage.
0: Now, let's talk about the technology that's helping, um, you know, green technology that's helping us to phase out fossil fuel, especially the ones that are, you know, not needed, and they help us to build a better economy around um, green tech and things that actually are about sustainability of the environment and the climate. Now, a lot of these um, green tech firms are springing up um, across the continent, but still, uh, most of uh, the solutions are not affordable, and most of them are not readily available. Um, what are your thoughts on these new technologies and how to make them a lot more available and affordable for the majority of Africans, though, you know, we know that you know, Africa doesn't contribute up to 4% of um, global emissions.
1: Yeah, I think there's, um, of course, the inherent question about technology being accessible and affordable, especially when it's not scaled and when it's still being, you know, run like an experiment in a bunch of places. But I think it will increasingly get cheaper as as it's deployed more and it's proved more successful in, in deployment, it will increasingly get cheaper to be used at the initial stage when it's still being developed, it's going to be expensive because there will be a few, you know, it's a lot of demand and supply. There will be limited demand. But once people get to know how it works and how efficient it is and the impacts on communities, how it's impacting indigenous ways of doing things, then if everything is okay then it will it will be scaled, it will get increasingly cheaper. But at the meantime It's important that technology are designed to be affordable and cheaper because there's no point producing something that will be incredibly costly for many countries that only a few countries can afford. That means we cannot have a joint collective effort to really address the same challenge. And while we talk about technology, it's also good to talk about locally led, you know, measures, locally led. you hear a lot about locally led adaptation, how communities are on their own indigenous, indigenously tackling the impact of climate change. We also need to learn from them and probably integrate this into any of the technology that we are trying to create, and this could potentially prove cheaper and even more acceptable for communities who would see that their local ways of doing this are now integrated in technology that can help them scale it even more. So technology cost is of course a challenge, but hopefully by having more deployments and more accessibility, we'll be able to reduce this cost. The solar components used to be very expensive before, now it's getting increasingly cheaper in many countries. For countries like Nigeria, it's not that cheap because the government has some tariff on solar, but uh, in other countries that have some policies that are friendly to this, uh, to this clean uh, energy tech, the they, they costs are way cheaper.
0: So how do you advise, finally, how African countries can phase out fossil fuels and the subsidies, remembering that, you know, there are subsidies on them and actually still have to deal with you know, poverty eradication, development issues and other things involved?
1: Yes, for Africa the conversation is a bit complicated. You know, um, it's a lot easier for Europe to phase out subsidy than it is for Africa. And We have to face this reality. Of course, it's it's that's why you have a, a, a nationally determined contribution or a net zero plan because you can gradually plan how you can slowly but steadily phase out uh, fossil fuel subsidies. No questions, that they are inefficient. No questions that we don't need to have this. But if you re- remove subsidy today in Nigeria, people are going to be on the street the next day because of the cost of, of, of petrol, you know, the cost of the things that are really accessible, that controls their life, they're heavily dependent on these services. So removing subsidies on them would really, I mean, even for government, it would be politically inefficient because they, they have their, their jobs on the line. So it has to be a gradual process. There has to be a clear plan to say that on year one, we are removing 3%, year two, 5%, year three, 10%, year four, you know, it has to be gradual. And as you're removing, you are bringing up the balance. Like you are, you are making other, other alternatives more accessible and cheaper. This has to be the plan. So that in a the, in the space of 10, 20, 30 years, you would see that you've successfully removed subsidy without throwing people into poverty, without having people lose jobs, without having people on the streets protesting because of rising cost of things. Nigeria, for example, is heavily reliant on petrol for cars, for generating sets, you know, you don't have electricity if you don't put yours on, and, on, and a lot of cooking components, uh, kerosene and the rest of them are coming from this component. So we don't have, first, enough electricity to say that we are using electric stove, for example, to cook. Uh, so in countries where you can use electric stove, you can see that that part of kerosene is solved, right? but we don't have that yet. So we can't even go there. A lot of people are using gas, gas is increasing in cost these days. You see people are even writing and protesting already. So you can imagine what would happen when you have subsidy removal. In terms of coal phase out, of course, this will also be another gradual process. A lot of jobs are dependent on this in many African countries. And that's why we we'll talk about just transition, that you transition to clean energy, to green economy without necessarily impacting the, the livelihoods of people. So it has to be careful. Because you need to transit does not mean you just make reckless decisions and jump out. No, it has to be carefully planned because people are people. Of course, they, they, they built the economy of the past that is going away. You can't begrudge them that much. Somewhere unaware, somewhere aware. So, but then you need to carefully plan with these people to transit them from fossil fuel dependent job and economy to a green job and economy. And you need to so, so for some then you need to upskill them to be able to fit into the next sector. So that's why we have conversation about just transition comes in. We need to be able to carry everybody along and make sure that their livelihoods are not impacted because that will also throw people into poverty for some of them in intergenerational poverty. And this is what you don't. Want to see? So it has to be carefully planned. It must be deliberate and intentional. Something that is not really popular, you know, within a, a lot of governments in a, in a lot of countries in Africa. You have to be deliberate and intentional about these plans. It's not going to plan itself. And we have to think about people. People. It has to be people centered.
0: Well, interesting. And um, we'd have to cut it short here. We have a lot to discuss on climate change, climate action, and the continent of Africa. But we'll call it quits for now and uh, have more conversations later on this particular issue. But we need everyone's hands to be on deck, uh, everyone to continue to collaborate on the continent uh, so that we can first raise awareness and the needed consciousness to put climate change first and at the center of all discussions, both presently and in the future. Thank you very much for the conversation. I'll be speaking to a climate activist and a COP26 delegate, Chagosi Ude. Thank you very much, Chagosi Ude.
1: Thank you so much, Antonio and thanks for bringing this conversation to light. And uh, yeah, have the best of the week and take the care.
0: Yeah, thank you.